Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. This video is sponsored by CuriosityStream. Get access to my streaming video service, Nebula, when you sign up for CuriosityStream using the link in the description. In the deep, empty immensity of interstellar space, some few people may find a home far from an star to call their own. Space is big. Really big. Really, really big. We live on the thin surface of a rock far more immense than all of our civilizations and ecosystems combined, and yet it is nothing but a pale blue dot as seen by the Voyager 1 probe when it was 40 times as far from Earth as Earth is from our Sun. This distance is often called the edge of our solar system, and all of our major planets all the way out to Neptune, and all their moons and the asteroid belt are inside this volume. That pale blue dot on which we all but a thin skin around the rock and magma below is insignificant compared to this volume, which is 50 trillion trillion times larger. This is the same as a single grain of sand compared to our entire planet. Inside this vast empty expanse of space we have our eight major planets, over a hundred moons and dwarf planets and millions of minor planets and asteroids. One day this volume, trillions of trillions of times larger than our entire world, will see each of those millions of minor planets colonized or reshaped into vast habitats and megastructures. Civilizations beyond our ability to meaningfully count will arise inside this expanse, in our solar system, and perhaps become what we call a Dyson Swarm or Kardashev II civilization. In time, we will see civilizations around every one of the half a trillion stars in our galaxy, which will grow to become such swarms themselves, turning us into a Kardashev III civilization, swallowing up every star as we spread out over the whole galaxy. And yet our solar system and its worlds are but a pinprick compared to the far more immense volume separating us from neighboring stars and them from each other, which in turn is nearly a trillion times larger than that vast expanse contained inside what we call our solar system, and it contains many worlds and minor planets and comets people may one day claim as their home. Today we will contemplate the idea of creating space settlements outside of star systems, the deep space habitats. Why we are going to build them and what purpose they may serve and who lives on them and why. Now we have discussed this before, many years back in our episode Colonizing the Oort Cloud, and more recently in our episode Colonizing the Galaxy, and there we suggested that we might string out relays between stars to serve as parts of laser highways between neighboring systems. Those might number hundreds of thousands or even millions, possibly spaced only light hours apart and on paths between our star and hundreds of neighbors, and yet this is still only a fraction of that space, and much like a rail line or freeway moving through a desert or mountain range, a vast expanse of wilderness. In truth such laser highways are even smaller comparatively, like a thin string of yarn stretched across a whole continent, with the occasional bead on it every kilometer or so representing a station. Even that analogy falls short of the scale of emptiness, space is just huge. Such stations can also clear debris and dust from their lane, allowing faster and safer transport, 
so it makes some sense they might seek to colonize their relay line to be a thicker tube of controlled space, clearing material and permitting more ships to travel the lane and faster. Even if they started having satellite facilities in such a wider tube though, it would be comparatively small compared to the huge gulf between stars. This vast expanse beyond the planets would seem a place ideal for folks who wanted more elbow room, at least in the context of being far from civilization, the space habitat itself might be fairly tight-packed depending on their resources to build with. Relay stations might be subsidized or might make lots of money on their interstellar toll roads to spend on extensive habitat construction. Or they might be convicts or troublemakers sent to some non-relay habitat to mine ice. When it comes to being far from civilization though, this is a good place to be. Especially if we're talking about folks leaving a solar system besides our own, in a distant future where the galaxy is colonized and every star near them is a Dyson Swarm already. Circa 1 million AD. We do need to keep in mind though that needing elbow room itself might be a little absurd in a classic context. Interplanetary space is already so immense that even fully populated Dyson Swarms, with billions of times Earth's current population, would have lower population densities than our deserts do. So we could imagine some crazed cult seeking to sneak into the depths of space where their nearest neighbor might be weeks of communication lag and years of travel time from them. I wouldn't imagine the powers that be would be okay with them controlling a relay station, but those are just the fertile river valleys of deep space, most stations would be elsewhere and isolated. But we probably need to ask how this helps their goal any more than just huddling inside a typical O'Neill cylinder in orbit of our sun, thousands of kilometers from a neighbor, when normally a place would be considered an isolated compound because it had no one within a kilometer or so of it here on Earth. It is also hard to recruit new members far from anyone else. Additionally, we need to keep in mind that we said such habitats might be important to colonizing a galaxy, where speeds of ships were between 0.1 and 1% of light speed, requiring many centuries to reach even the nearest star, but that might also pop up in a civilization with easier power access. Consider, a lot of empty space is very handy if you have easy fusion power in order to radiate heat away and become vastly more valuable in a black hole economy, but if we're talking about warping space, we probably should not rule out people in the future figuring out how to tap into whatever dark energy is as an actual power source. Consider, we often talk about how Hubble expansion is tearing our galaxies apart from each other and apparently doing so at an ever-expanding rate, fueled by dark energy and we will give that figure as around 70 kilometers per second per megaparsec. However, we usually assume these new bits of space-time bubbling out of apparently nowhere are doing so virtually everywhere all the time, in pockets about the size of a Planck length, a length so tiny it makes atoms look as big as solar systems. Down at the human scale we would say expansion occurs at a rate of about 2.2 times 10 to the negative 18th meters per second per meter or that a cubic meter should be in something like 10 to the negative 53 cubic meters of new space per cubic meter per second. You do not need to memorize any of those numbers, there's no quiz coming up and I'm doing napkin math for them anyway, but a Planck volume is actually ridiculously tiny compared to that, 4.2 times 10 to the negative 105 cubic meters, about 51 orders of magnitude smaller, So something like a couple thousand billion 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 of the new Planck volumes of space-time are popping up in any given cubic meter of space in any given second. 
untold trillions of trillions of them are emoji in the palm of your hand every moment. There is a lot of disagreement on how much energy is in an empty packet of space-time, see our Dark Energy episode for more discussion of that, but a popular figure is about a nanojoule of energy per cubic meter. This is that vacuum energy folks often mention and it is problematic because the other estimated figure is 120 orders of magnitude higher, 10 to the 113th joules per cubic meter. And in that case, each cubic meter of space would have 10 to the 60 or a trillion, 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 trillion joules of new energy emerging into it every second. Now I don't care which it happens to be at the moment, something barely powerful enough to keep a light bulb running if you used a volume 10,000 light years across, or one that can run entire supernovae bright bulbs on a cubic centimeter. Rather it's the notion that if you have the ability to tap new bits, or old bits, of space-time for power, then having a lot of space to get that from and to radiate out your waste heat so you're not burning everyone around you makes deep space habitats more appealing. And indeed this is one of the handful of workarounds of things like the Dyson Dilemma of the Fermi Paradox, along with extragalactic sanctuaries which we'll look at next week. As to why we might not see civilizations just crammed into a tight space around their star, or artificial quasi-star as they could. They spread out because they're farming space itself, either for power or for material floating around it, like dust and gas clouds, or for its property of letting you disperse heat energy into it. Now, I think we will see deep space habitats under just about every technological scenario, even if we never get better power than natural stars and atomic fission plants, but each scenario has a very different characteristic. For that matter we also need to keep in mind that deep space is a pretty vague term. Here today we mean things out past Neptune, but there is a big difference between levels of deep space, like in the Kuiper Belt and Scattered Disk versus the Outer Oort Cloud. Except in that particular case, where the value in space is because a huge empty region is valuable for resources or energy, Folks are out there because they are being paid to, or they really don't want to be back in among everyone else. And we're going a bit beyond the classic person who likes isolation. I live in the country out on my farm, my wife and I like our space, and while I quite like my neighbors, I wouldn't mind exchanging them for even more empty space out to the horizon, but not at the expense of not having high speed internet, or Amazon delivering, or that most of the stores I need are within 20 minutes of home. That's how most of my neighbors and most of our other rural friends feel, though often not how their kids feel who eventually immigrate to the bright lights of the big city and so on. Very few folks really want to be a total hermit, and for them, a deep space habitat is not appealing anyway because there's all those other folks there on that habitat. Only in the case where we have fairly compact fusion power and very good automation and 3D printing could people have their own modest-sized personal habitat to properly hermit in, or as a post-biological life form, though admittedly both of those scenarios strike me as quite plausible. Otherwise it's a huge cost for a single person and something bigger is presumably subsidizing the operation. So that's one example. We might build habitats meant to be true nature preserves, not zoos, in which case distance might be seen as handy, and someone might agree to be keeper on one of those, very much your classic druid of the D&D or Radicass the Brown kind of flavor. Also for the keeper of telescopes, and there is likely to be a lot of hypersensitive scientific equipment that doesn't like any sort of gravitational, magnetic, or EM signal interference, 
and deep space is a good place to go to minimize noise in that regard. Extragalactic space is even better. Note that the person watching these objects might not be classically human either. Semi-organic caregivers and post-biological minds in virtual worlds are entirely plausible, as are folks who hibernate and awaken only when maintenance or reports are needed. Same for most of the automated labs or weapons bunkers, where you need something intelligent and trustworthy as a failsafe on more automated processes. You've got your big antimatter storage far from everywhere else and some human or truly sentient AI is on site to play guardian, or possibly an actual warden on dangerous prisoners, or even dangerous lab samples or doomsday weapons, it's hard to imagine what sort of things an advanced civilization with many trillions of scientists working for thousands of years might dream up, but if nightmares can be made reality, they would probably find a way, and that is the sort of thing you want to keep tucked far away from anything you care about. Deep space is a good place to banish your nightmares too, compared to uninhabited solar systems rich in exploitable material they might consume before making a return visit home. Note that these are cases for single people or AI, probably not couples or small families as that implies at least a limited fondness for social interaction, and solo operations are likely to be rare when it comes to trust. Not many of us are going to picture the most trustworthy person and think, how about that ultra-reclusive guy hanging out in the hills? So such a place might be engineered by that person and occupied by their choosing. Think of Dr. Morbius from the sci-fi classic Forbidden Planet, studying the vanished Krell as the lone survivor of the colonists, except his daughter, and having no desire for company even to help, nor trusting them to help. Or Freeman Lau from the film Silent Running, who is the self-appointed guardian of a spaceship dome with the last forest in it, after he kills his crewmates, excluding the simple robots Huey, Dewey, and Louie who keep him company before he nukes the place. Of course, when we're talking about lone occupants, we might also mean artificial intelligence or uploaded minds or transhumans, and we also might mean a large computer intentionally sighted in deep space to allow it to remain as cold as possible to maximize computing efficiency. So another thing we might find in deep space is huge archives or virtual worlds, places designed to be able to run on some internal power plants for half of eternity, either storing digital copies of minds on ice, safe from even supernovae, or active digital minds. Truth be told, I would expect this to be one of the more common examples of deep space habitats, as people running in a virtual community or running on various shared or private virtual worlds really only want to be synced with the rest of civilization for patches and updates and possibly the occasional shipment of raw materials, specialized gear, or reactor fuel, all of which can either happen at light speed or by some automated slow-moving boat working its way out there once a century. Detector grids are another of those things you would expect to be all over deep space, and if they're active arrays then whatever is powering them, be it beamed in power or locally generated, is likely to be a lot more than you need for running a small habitat. Mind you, you're not necessarily going to have some telescope hundreds of kilometers long that's got a small cylinder habitat attached to it, it's probably going to be set a ways away, possibly millions of kilometers, but in scale, that's like saying you put a telescope on the tallest hill or mountain in every country or large state or prefecture, and service personnel live at the bottom of that hill or mountain. Same for weapons platforms, especially as you probably want those moving slowly but perpetually like submarines, making them hard to track. One example would be bomb-pumped lasers, only scaled up a lot, 
where it's just a big tube with a bomb at the end and a receiver and maybe a tiny RTG to run it, floating around space waiting for an activation code and firing solution, then it quickly turns that way, detonates its nuke, and microseconds later, itself as the bomb, generates that one-shot fire and forget super powerful laser. See Project Excalibur for more details. I should note that this is more likely to be how a minefield in deep space would operate, rather than a classic bomb waiting for contact. If you do have bombs in space, you're exploding them with the intent of their debris clipping a vessel moving through the area at relativistic speeds with space debris, and its own inertia is going to make those fragments nuclear in strength. Those telescopes we discussed are not really for scientific value in most systems either. We are talking military defense or economic usage, our solar system might one day have deep space telescopes to be used for astronomy of the universe around us, out in the scattered disk and even the Oort cloud, I'm honestly sure we will, but in a colonized galaxy of half a trillion star systems, in the year 1 million AD, there's not likely to be a lot of astronomy left to do strictly for scientific aims. And you're all looking around to get advanced notice of war fleets or incoming trade freighters, or to try to get faster information on distant systems before it arrived by relays, which would not always be moving in one straight line, information that might be very valuable to whoever gets it first. So you might be occupants of a cylinder habitat that's out in the middle of nowhere, owned by a nation or corporation or some of your citizens or in some egalitarian trust. The habitat might be getting its expenses paid for by trade or subsidy by some group or nation back home, or a thousand different nations and defense conglomerates in the inner system, close to your sun, maintaining their detectors and space mines, and fire and forget lasers for your region of nowhere, and making extra cash on the side sending hot tips to merchant cartels. You probably take your payment in whatever you don't provide locally, which might be fuel, raw materials, or hard to replicate items for your industrial base or it might just be raw data, entertainment to watch and schematics for your 3D printers to print. Or maybe it's how you pay your space taxes, I'm sure those will still be around whether it's the year 2100 or 21 million AD. I suspect even hive minds would find some reason for them to exist still. I'm not sure where people will tend to draw the boundaries on solar systems but I'm guessing when tax time comes around they'll be a lot broader with where those boundaries lie. Which amusingly means there's probably somebody whose job it is to fly out to space habitats that have gone off the grid and got delinquent on their space property taxes. If history is any guide, the job of a taxman visiting isolated spots to collect up is a risky one to say the least. I would also wonder what the property tax equivalents will be. Maybe on volume, maybe on volume but dependent on the local density of the interstellar medium, Maybe on surface areas in terms of solar cross-section, how much sunlight you get so to speak. Maybe some volumes like those directly between two stars or rich in gas have much higher rates. A barren asteroid the size of a mountain might be a proverbial gourd strike, but the property tax on it might be huge and prevent casual colonization by an individual or small group. Now what's your community doing out there? Well of course they might just be folks who migrated to where there's a living, though traditionally heading off to the middle of nowhere is not the best option for finding a way to make a living. Still, people do get paid to live in Alaska, in the form of getting an even share of their oil royalties to encourage more people to move there and stay, and there's been a lot of programs down the centuries to encourage people to migrate to places, free land or subsidy for instance, and penal colonies too, something we examined more in our Space Prison Colonies episode. 
getting chased out into exile is pretty common also, though I think we'll discuss that scenario more next week in Intergalactic Sanctuaries. Let's close by looking at a sample deep space habitat as history and development, so we can look at a few technology and size levels. We will name this station Deep Space 9, billion eight hundred seventy-six million five hundred forty-three thousand two hundred and ten, or Deep Space 10 or DS-10 for short. It's not a very important station, it is 16 light years from Earth, roughly north of our solar system in the constellation Ursa Major in the halo regions of Groombridge 1618, a dim orange dwarf star about two-thirds of the mass of Sol, our own sun. DS-10 is about three light months from Groombridge 1618, a star of little consequence but considered well inside the inner sphere of human civilization by the time DS-10 was founded in the year 4022 AD, and most star systems within 100 light years had colonists at them or en route to them. Most of our founders came from a few of the relay stations between Groombridge and A.D. Leonis, a red dwarf also north of Sol, with whom 1618 does minimal trade, and who got first dibs on a space rock mostly made of ices about 20 kilometers wide and about three light weeks from the nearest of those relay stations. Back when we started we had a mining colony that was less interested in actual mining than securing long-term rights, and while there are thousands of different stellar empires in the 44th century, the standing custom is that you've gotta live there and work the place and that the scope of your claim cannot be wildly beyond what you can exploit if you want exclusivity, which is to say, in the 44th century, if you land a thousand colonists on a nice planet like Mars, other folks are free to land on a different continent on that planet too. So when the call went out for colonists for the rock, a lot of people migrating down those relay lines signed on, some individuals, some families, a few large groups of shared cultural or ideological background, and DS-10's main hand-drum walls got manufactured from existing material reserves at one of the relay stations and credit out of North Seoul Pioneer Fund. Most relay stations keep a few sections of standard 250 meter radius hand-drum around, as it is fairly standard in size, your classic 2RPM hab, and relay stations are often expanding or they supply nearby deep space stations or even passing ships needing repair or wanting to expand. The mid-air refueling equivalent of trying to get people, fuel, and supplies to ships hurtling by at a decent fraction of light speed is an impressive and dangerous art that most relay stations practice for hefty fees. The solar system has a lot of space stations and investor funds that do long-term loans with payments that they take in cash or kind, usually preferring volatiles to be used in the vast habitat swarms around Sol. Seoul itself mostly pays for stuff with vast supplies of information, entertainment, and technology, but tends to be a big importer of raw mass, and they basically charge our ancestors a thousand times the mass of the habitation drum and other gear we got, due at the nearest relay station no later than the year 4322, a 30-decade mortgage basically, but truth be told that's a pretty good deal for us, our hab drum is about 4 square kilometers of area, or 1,000 acres, and mass in at 4 megatons, a very basic shell we will install inside of the icy rock that becomes DS-10. We owe the NSPF 4 gigatons of ices, but that's about a tenth of a percent of the mass of our new home, so not a bad deal. We have a good old deuterium-deuterium fusion reactor, a time-tested design that's been in use since the 26th century, and indeed we got our reactor used with just 9300 kilo-hours of operating time, and it can be run at anywhere from 1 gigawatt up to 100. 
Literally billions of these things have been manufactured down the centuries. A super reliable design improved with time and practice, many of them built in the chandelier cities of Neptune itself, like ours, though our serial number is 0000010, which we've decided is good luck and adds vintage value. Back when it was first settled, there was just a couple hundred folks on DS10, and a couple hundred more that filtered in during that first decade, and their mining out ice mostly get the rock below and pay for other things the colony would need. Megatons of raw materials head back along the relay lines every day, and we may be loaned out at an exorbitant rate to get our drum and claim licensing, but they pay well for more of it. We just wanted to make sure we had plenty down the road to keep Reactor 0000010 running for thousands of centuries to come, though the Reactor's warranty appears to have expired in the year 2522. Flash forward to the year 4322 and we're no longer a 20 kilometer wide ice ball, but a foil covered sphere a bit larger than the original rock with our original habitat, and our rock has a lot of smaller halves and facilities in it with an effective living area about the size of an O'Neill cylinder, keeping our reactor running near its top setting, and now that loan back to the NSPF is paid off. Our local government can afford to buy a second reactor for a population of 50,000 folks, themselves a mix of regular humans, cyborgs, post-humans, and a small colony of uplifted walruses. In addition to the 50,000 living on DS-10, there's a few thousand more living on smaller stations nearby, just light hours away, or spaceships that collect smaller icy rocks or care for our section of the relay detector grid. We have an array of powerful lasers that can be used for self-defense, slowing or speeding ships locally like a little brother of the true relay stations, and for vaporizing dangerous debris if it can't instead be claimed and used. Come the year 5022, we've melted, smelted, and imported until we have become a big giant soccer ball shaped bucky habitat, 160 kilometers wide, composed of 90 O'Neill cylinder habitats, each 8 kilometers in diameter and 32 long, arranged as the edges of our soccer ball habitat. Inside the protective superstructure we have many smaller space farms, some private halves that are smaller than the original space habitat, and a lot of gas and metal storage. We now run on a trio of 10 terawatt hydrogen fusion reactors. We are home to 10 million folks, though we could comfortably house 10 times that, and are the largest habitat within two light weeks. Cargo ships coming in from the vast wispy gas nets that suck up ionized matter in our territory bring new fuel and material in every day by the ton, and we currently have 200,000 gigatons of hydrogen on hand to feed our reactors, based on current consumption, which is about 2 kilograms of fuel a minute, or 1,000 tons a year, that would let us keep the lights on for 200 billion years, so we're definitely thinking of the long term here inside our 100 mile wide habitat in space. We have a claim on everything within 12 light hours of our base, a radius of 26 billion kilometers, and we estimate that includes about 10 million gigatons of gas and dust, more than 50 times what we have stored in our tanks thus far. That stuff is not stationary as it migrates around the galaxy slowly, but these days, with colonization going strong and colonies successfully started hundreds of light years away, it is assumed colonization will keep going, and eventually almost every bit of matter in the galaxy will be in active use or in storage, rather than floating around. Except dark matter, but there's plans for that too. Now it's the year 20,000 and 22, 
and our population on the further expanded DS-10 has long since stabilized to one billion people, many digital, many not particularly human in appearance, many thousands of years old. We have a black hole power generator running in our basement that we feed matter into at a rate of roughly 3 grams per second or 100 tons per year, and we have over a million gigatons on hand these days, enough to run our civilization of a billion for 10 trillion years. We're still the biggest habitat in our area, and a sovereign state in our own right, but we are considered part of the greater Groombridge 1618 metro stellar community which itself is home to many quadrillions. In the outer reaches of the system, we're in the top 1,000 largest deep space communities and one of the million largest deep space communities in settled space, not including all the megahabs of Sol Systems, Kuiper Belt, and Scattered Disk. The future looks bright, at least for the next 10 trillion years, and there's rumors back on Earth they figured out how to economically capture dark matter, which would vastly expand our available black hole fuel, especially for deep space habitats like ours, since dark matter is evenly spread through space, throughout the galaxy. A cubic light day almost anywhere in the galaxy would have nearly 100 million gigatons of dark matter in it, enough to keep us lit for a quadrillion years and there's rumors about dark energy collectors being discovered, but you know what they say, dark energy is the energy of 20 millennia from now, and always will be. In the meantime, even though the nearest star is light months away and barely visible to the naked eye, the future is pretty bright for those living far from any sun in the eternal night. So we were talking about deep space today and we mostly focused on what that looks like in our little corner of the galaxy, but there are places where things are much thinner or thicker, like the Orion Nebula or Horsehead Nebula or many more. Nebulae are fascinating places, often the birthplace of stars, and there's a great episode, Cosmic Front, the Orion Nebula, over on CuriosityStream that shows us Orion and many other nebulae in beautiful and informative ways. Speaking of Nebula, last month we released Plants vs. Megastructures, a companion video to our two-hour episode The Megastructure Compendium that's exclusively available over on Nebula along with our Coexistence with Aliens series. If you've managed to finish up the Megastructural Compendium, you'll enjoy Plants vs. Megastructures. Nebula is our streaming service created to give YouTube creators more flexibility and not be at the whim of YouTube's algorithms for our content, or any other platform, it is the largest creator-owned streaming service in existence and all of SFIA's content is up there, ad and sponsor free, and released a couple days early. We also release an extended edition or two every month, and have some exclusive content like our Coexistence with Aliens series, and now Planets vs. Megastructures. It's a great way to help support some of your favorite channels while getting ad-free content. Now you can subscribe to Nebula all by itself, but we've also partnered up with CuriosityStream, the home of thousands of great educational videos like Cosmic Front, the Orion Nebula. That lets us offer Nebula for free as a bonus if you sign up for CuriosityStream using the link in our episode description. That lets you see the amazing content on CuriosityStream and Nebula for less than $15 a year, just use the link in the episode's description. Alright, that wraps us up for today but we'll be back this weekend for our mid-month Sci-Fi Sunday episode, Primitive Aliens, and the challenges of interacting with them on July 10th. 
Then next week we'll continue our tale of galactic colonization with a look at seeking to escape to extragalactic sanctuaries on July 14th, and we'll see just how enormous a challenge that can be and what almost incomprehensible resources those hunting for you might have at their fingertips. Then we'll return to the Fermi Paradox to ask where all these enormous habitats and megastructures we discuss on the show might be, and what their apparent absence indicates about the universe. After that, we'll take a look at two of the most mysterious things in our universe, black holes and dark matter, and if dark matter might be black holes. If you want alerts when those and other episodes come out, don't forget to subscribe to the channel and hit the notifications bell, and if you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help support future episodes, Please visit our website, IsaacArthur.net, for ways to donate, or become a show patron over at Patreon. Those and other options, like our awesome social media forums for discussing futuristic concepts, can be found in the links in the description. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a great week!